lot of engineering and science students. They would shut down the campus during party week. And the party for us engineering students were watching Star Trek for 72 hours straight. <laughs> so it reminds, me, it reminds me of my graduate school days. But it is my honor to be here. Thank you so much, Dennis. Thank you, Herb, and the team, CMI Global. Thank you guys for coming together to meet around sacred scripture. Uh, may I ask my wife for 35 years, Marlinda, would you stand up? I just want you to see her. And, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Before I get into the Word, let me just highlight some of the uh, books that I brought with me. My latest book is titled One in Christ, Bridging Racial and Cultural Divides. The privilege of meeting people and impacting them who are different than yourself is an honor. God's highest order of creation is human beings. Whenever they let you into their lives, into their world, and into their space, it's a privilege. Leadership Lessons of Jesus. This is a drop card. gives you access to a number of sermons on that subject. There's another drop card. gives you access you can download onto your mobile device. Leadership Lessons of the Apostle Paul. And so I want you to be aware of that. And uh, another book that I wrote some time ago titled Activating the Gifts of the Holy Spirit. What are the gifts of the Spirit? How do they function? How do you activate them? And uh, it is for leaders, the ministry of the elder. How do you raise up elders in a local church? What structured program do you take them through so they can be an asset to you? And finally, bounce back. A CD set, bounce back from discouragement, bounce back from depression, bounce back from rejection, bounce back. I'm here tonight to talk with you guys about what it means to be what I call an authentic reconciler. In fact, let's bow our hearts together and we're going to go right into the subject. Father, over these next moments as I'm in the Word, I pray that you would just so use me. Help me to teach with simplicity and clarity that each person will understand. And more than understand, help us to be confronted with the truth of Scripture in such a way that we can ingest it and live out what it means to be authentic reconcilers. These things I pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. For the next few moments, I want to talk with you about cross-cultural coaching. I want to come alongside of you as a coach. You heard in my bio, I have a chance to work with the New York Giants and Jets over the years. And I discovered, I'm not even a football fan, but... In my working with those teams, I discovered that the average NFL football team has 15 coaches. Defensive coach, offensive coach, punting coach, coach for the quarterback, fitness coach. The purpose of a coach is for those who are not bad but want to get better. These are professional athletes that make a lot of money. They're the best of the best of the best of the best in their field, in the world, whatever professional NFL team. To make it into the pros, you have to be the best of the best of the best of the best in your field, and yet they have coaches. And we who preach the message of Jesus, that, that is 
that is earmarked to help people escape hell and get to heaven and experience new life here on the earth. Oftentimes, we never have coaches. We don't have preaching coaches, we don't have leadership coaches, and many never have a cross-cultural coach. For the next few moments, as I come alongside of you, I want to offer three coaching tips to be more effective in cross-cultural ministry. I love what John Wooden, the former basketball coach of UCLA, said. A good coach can change a game. A great coach can change a life. I want you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, because we're going to camp out there from verses 11 through verse 14. And what we're going to see is that if we're eavesdropping in on a personal conversation between two leaders, Paul and Peter, and it's surrounding a subject that's very, very, very tender, and it requires a whole lot of skillfulness when you deal with helping someone, as Paul was, a coach to Peter, helping someone navigate the murky waters of race and culture and ethnicity so that they're not put off, but they're open their hearts wide. And Peter had a problem. And he did not know either if he had a problem or the severity of his problem of dealing with prejudice. And Paul had to bring it to his attention. And I want to begin reading at verse 11, and the scripture says, When Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his, in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Stop there. I want us to dig out the text, because it's rich with information that can help us. Antioch was the third most important city in the Roman Empire. Following Rome and Alexandria, there was Antioch. Antioch was an ethnically, culturally, and racially diverse city because it was a city of commerce. And it was close to the waterways so that boats and ships came in to do business and commerce. This church, the church in Antioch, was formed when just the sovereign move of the Spirit occurred, Acts 11 tells us. And then all of a sudden, Greeks and Jews and people of different views gather together under the one umbrella of Christ for one of the most significant moves of the Spirit, the first cross-racial, multicultural church, the church at Antioch. Fast forward now, as we know, Paul was the primary leader, Barnabas was one of the support elders, a significant elder nonetheless, but there was Paul and Barnabas. And a problem broke out in the church that had to do with Peter. 
And the reason why the problem was so significant was Peter's platform was so significant. Peter was one of the leading apostles, one of the twelve, as you know, as I know, but one of the leading apostles of the church of Jerusalem. And he was visiting there, this church at Antioch, that was distinctly different than his home church. The church of Jerusalem was largely monocultural. Here the church in Antioch was largely multicultural. It is totally different. The dynamics are different. The nuances are different. The way you do ministry is different. The word doesn't change, but the way you contextualize the word has to change. In lots of ways, and we'll unpack all those in a moment. But I had to learn, like you're learning, like I'm still learning, that when you deal with people that are different than yourself, you must make sure that you're racially attractive. When I first came to the Lord, I was an atheist. And so I came to Christ when I was 20 years old, finished my mechanical engineering degree, went on to do civil engineering at Stevens, as you heard of my resume. But there is this young Christian one of the older guys, he must have been about four years older than me, and he was finishing up his graduate work, and he was a strong Christian, and he took me under his wing, and he, and he said to me, David, let me share you, let me teach you how to share your faith. And I was all ears. I was open. I was eager. I was on fire for God, and I wanted to tell people about this Jesus, because I used to be a radical atheist, and now I'm a radical Christian without knowledge. Deal without knowledge is dangerous. And that's why I was very dangerous. And so we would say, after homework, let's go and go through the campus, let's visit some of the dorms, let's knock on some doors, let's share our faith. So, okay, cool. I didn't know you were supposed to be scared. I said, okay, I grew up in New York, I didn't know I was supposed to be scared. So we knocked on this one door. And this Vietnamese guy opened the door. And so my friend had told me what to do, what to say. He said, you need to say, hey, would you have a few moments? I just want to talk to you about spiritual things. And so I said that. I said, would you have a few moments? I'd like to talk to you about spiritual things. And I said, come on in. And so I started to talk about Jesus and how he changed his life. And the guy's nodding and smiling. And so I go in for the kill. I said, would you like to accept Jesus as your Savior right here and now? The guy said, yes, absolutely. And so I said, pray with me. I saw my pastor pray with people, so I figured that's what you're supposed to do. I said, pray with me. And repeat after me these words. I let him in. My makeshift prayer of how people come to faith in Christ and pray. I'm so happy. I walked out the room. Walked onto the, the campus property, and my friend, he, he nudged me right on the arm. What did you do that for? That you just messed up. What do you mean I just messed up? You said I'm supposed to lead people to Christ. I did. He said, you don't understand Southeast Asian culture and Vietnamese culture. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, Southeast Asians, in particular Vietnamese, they're very affirming people. They never want to disappoint you. So they'll yes you to death, even though they don't know what you're talking about or don't believe what you're saying or they're not where you are, but they affirm. And that's what that young man did. He didn't accept Christ as Savior. He just wanted to please you. There was my lesson number one. So I'm going to give you three lessons on cross-cultural culture. Lesson number one. Welcome the confrontation. 
We never realize unless we ask questions or someone who's further along than we are. They begin to point things out. My wife has a way of saying this to me in such a nice way. She says to me sometimes, honey, we need to talk. I hate when she says that. And the reason why I hate when she says that, as nice as those words are, those words are laced with this undertone that says, I'm going to confront you about something that you're doing or not doing, something that's displeasing me or something that's not pleasing me that you ought to do so it pleases me. And so I hate those words. I don't care how nice she says it. I don't care how sweet and melodious it comes out of her mouth. I brace myself because I know I'm about to be confronted. See, brings, confrontation rather brings awareness. You become aware of your limited perspective, growth potential, and opportunity of a broader influence. Somehow you're not seeing yourself like how others are seeing you, and you don't know it. And you think that you're doing really, really well, and you may not be, until you welcome confrontation. Confrontation can be external or internal. Internal confrontation is when you get convicted in your own conscience that something is amiss. Something is awry. Everything is not congruent with who I am, with my identity, with my biblical alignment. Peter never got convicted or confronted based on internal confrontation. He was externally confronted when Paul, as the scripture says, Paul withstood him to his face. See, a good coach will confront you. Our job is to welcome the confrontation. Confrontation reestablishes the standard you must meet. Your preference can never ignore biblical requirements. Because if they do, you might say, well, hey, what's the problem? Peter, he felt more comfortable eating with the Jews than with the Gentiles, and that's his preference. You're absolutely right, that's his preference. Dr. Gordon Alport, a prolific sociologist at Harvard University, spent his whole entire life studying prejudice. He defined prejudice as prejudgment with emotions. It's not just simply prejudgment, it's prejudgment with emotions. And there are five levels of prejudice. And they move in severity. Level one is when you simply talk about someone of another race, another group, in a negative way. Level two is avoidance. Level three is discrimination, acts of injustice. Level four is physical attack. Level five is extermination, ethnic cleansing. Peter was guilty of level two. Avoidance, when you pull yourself away because it's uncomfortable, it's not socially, it doesn't feel nice like my other friends may make me feel, then that level. Is level two. And Peter, though he had the right to have preferences, his action of preference was creating avoidance. And it was so negative that even Barnabas, one of the senior elders, who was himself multicultural, weak nonetheless, was almost pulled away to espouse the same type of behavior 
as Peter was practicing. And it's amazing what it does. And sometimes we're not, it's not even on our radar. When my wife was expecting our first child, I'm going way back now, 33 years ago, we have two daughters, both adults. She sent me to the store. And you, I was a young husband, got married at 22, so here I'm now 24 years of age. And the church was just two weeks old. I planted Christ Church when I was 24, working bivocationally as an environmental engineer and pastor on the weekend. We had six people. She made seven, I made eight. Humble beginnings. I couldn't even spell church. I was only four years old in my faith. So she sent me to the store to buy all kinds of odd food combinations because of her pregnancy. I can't tell you what she wanted at this point. All I knew was weird. But I'm trying to be a good husband, so I said, yes, dear. So I got to the grocery store, and I took one of those little red hand baskets. And I'm walking down each aisle to put into the basket what my wife wanted. And I got to one aisle, I reached up on the shelf, took the item, put it in the basket, and I just happened to look down the end of the aisle, and I saw different kinds of people in a supermarket. I saw whites, I saw African Americans, I saw Latinos, I saw Asians, I saw biracial people. And it was so stark, the distinction. And for the first time in my life, I heard the audible voice of God. Right there in that supermarket, the Lord said to me, David, why can't it be like that in my house? And I started weeping uncontrollably. Now, you have to understand my culture. I was born in Jamaica, and Jamaica was colonized, colonized by the British, and my culture was it's very British. You don't show emotions, particularly in public. I came over to the States when I was eight years old, and so here I am with this, with this British culture, and on top of that, this engineering mind and background, so everything is stoic, everything is no emotion, and then in the supermarket, I'm crying uncontrollably, I'm talking about stuff coming out of everywhere, because I felt God's concern for His church. He placed something on me that was bothering Him. When I got to the cashier, I was still weeping. She may have thought I was just a new ploy to bump some food. And when I got back home, I told Marlinda what happened to me, and we wept together. That day is when it was born in my heart. I gotta build churches that are multiracial, multicultural, multi-ethnic, because God said to me, "Why can't it be like that in my house?" And so I've been laboring these 33 years doing that very thing. Have a measure of success. I have whites, blacks, Asians, you know, Latinos, part of my congregation, part of my pastoral team, part of my you know, ministry team, throughout every rank and file in the church. And, and you know, I wrote a bunch of books on this stuff, and, and it still consumes me because I realize I still don't have all the answers. And why did God ask me to do it? My house was firebombed when I was 10 years old, racially motivated. Six white teenage boys threw a Molotov cocktail in the rear bedroom window when we lived in, in, in Rosedale, Queens, New York, to try to, you know, to try to destroy us. Our family just bought the house, you know, just two weeks prior. And we had to have round-the-clock police surveillance for six months with all the death threats and the mail that followed and the letters that followed. And so why did God choose me? 
Why did he put it in my heart? See, he confronted me with the reality of, why can't it be like this in my house? Isn't that what Jesus said in Mark eleven seventeen that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? Isn't that what the Scripture says in Revelation 7, verse 9? After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and were holding palm branches in their hands. See, this picture is a picture of God's multi-dimensional, multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multicultural family. God says, that's my family. Peter was being confronted by Paul publicly because his instruction was public. They couldn't confront him privately because if he confronted him privately and just, Peter's a leader, let's not create any waves. Paul's like, no, 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 no. His behavior was public. His behavior was offensive. His behavior was divisive. His behavior requires confrontation publicly, respectfully, but publicly. And so Paul, using, using, using external confrontation, so Peter then is welcoming of the confrontation. And when he's doing that, Paul's helping Peter understand, Peter, there's a big difference between a monocultural church and a multicultural church. There's a big difference. Let me throw out a couple of differences. In fact, we have a slide I'll put up on the screen. The big difference you'll find is that the people are different. When you think about the people, in a monocultural church, the people are largely of one culture. And so their culture speaks, culture speaks of the books I read, the music I listen to, the foods I eat. When you think, however, though, of a multicultural church, the people of different cultures, different kind of music, different kind of books that they read, different kinds of foods that they eat. So it's uniquely different. The worship experience in a monocultural church is oftentimes the very same. Same kind of music style. In a multicultural church, the music and the worship is very different. I tell people, if you come to Christ Church, you can hear from Bach to Boogie and from Rock to Rachmaninoff. It has to be very diverse. And it's not fragmented where it's seamless, where you move from one area to another, into another, into another, in a seamless way, because what you're saying in essence, and maybe tomorrow I'll unpack more of that, in order to, how do you create cross-cultural music, in order to be able to appeal to a cross-cultural audience? You have to look at it starting from the perspective that if God loves everybody, and I want everyone to be able to have a time to have an encounter with God, I must create some kind of diet in the hearts of people through the teaching and through ministry and through the community and through the sense of culture and atmosphere that welcomes people that are different themselves. A third distinction between the monocultural and the multicultural church is the preaching style. The preaching style must be different. In a multicultural church, it's conversational. 
And monocultural church can be conversational as well. In a monocultural church, it could be proclamational. For example, Jesus is Lord. Proclamational. I'm proclaiming. Conversational. Jesus is Lord. Now, if you want to be able to reach audiences that are very unique, very diverse, you have to be able to mix in both in such a way that it's endearing to the entire audience. So the times were very conversational. And that part of the sermon is very proclamational. But your proclamational style may not be necessarily loud. It's just the punctuation marks throughout. Is Jesus Christ Lord of your life? Is he really the boss? Does he sit in the place of authority in your heart? I'm really talking about you, your heart. So it becomes this fusion and requires a stretching. It requires you realizing everyone's not like you. And that's not an indictment. I'm just simply saying that if you want to be able to reach a global audience, you have to be able to be a global preacher. And don't expect everyone to like your preference or your style or your taste. You have to learn how to be able to stretch yourself so you can be able to be all of what God's called you to be. Another distinction in regards to monocultural versus multicultural church is that in a, it's the issue of conflict. In a monocultural church, if I'm in a church that's all white or all black or all Asian or all Hispanic, if I'm in a church that's all Hispanic and I'm, I'm Latino and we're, we're largely from Panama or Guatemala, the issue for me when we have a conflict, I discount culture. I discount race. Those are not issues. I deal with personality, I deal with style, I deal with age, I deal with those distinctions. In a church that's multicultural, multiracial, now all of a sudden I have to deal with style, I deal with age, I deal with personality, but now all of a sudden I'm introducing other issues. I'm introducing race, I'm introducing ethnicity, I'm introducing culture. So when you deal with conflict, it gets a bit messy. And if you don't know how to have this sense of how do I really deal with individuals that are different than me and it's not become race-motivated, may I suggest to you the only way you can do that is during peace times. It has to be clear that you're transracial. Because during wartime, no one's going to believe you. That's a whole other sermon. A fifth distinction in between the monocultural and the multicultural church is the issue of romance. See, in the monocultural church, black guy meets white guy, or black guy meets white girl, they get married, they fall in love, period. Multicultural church, you may find two different races meet each other and fall in love, and then what do you do if you don't know how to handle those things? Or... The romance. I remember in probably three years of our formation of the church, there was a Puerto Rican lady that came to the Lord in our church, and then maybe six months later, this Puerto Rican guy started coming to the church. He comes to the Lord. They met each other in our church. They want to get married. Cool. 
they came to me and said, Pastor, and we were renting space at the time in a catering hall. They said, Pastor, we want to get married and, and we'd love to be able to use this space right after one of the Sunday services. Can we use it? I said, that's good. They said, well, we set the date. I'm from out of counseling and we have family members that's coming and some of the older ones, all they do is speak English or rather speak Spanish and they want to come and do service and then stay after for the wedding. We quickly discovered that our worship team learned some songs in Spanish. So during the worship, I remember sitting on the front row and looking over my shoulder at one of the elderly grandmas as our worship team was singing this song in English and they went to Spanish. And I saw tears streaming down her face because we had made space for her. So there's a big difference between monocultural and multicultural, the church experience. And so Paul was schooling Peter that the way you do things in Jerusalem, you can't behave that way here. Because if you're behaving that way, you're segmenting and fragmenting and creating schisms in the very church. And you're rejecting people that Christ died for. He died equally for you as for them. And how could you then show that they are less of value than you by, by, by not showing table fellowship with them, particularly when you're used to it. Welcome confrontation. Wave at me if you're still with me. Still with me, wave at me. Good, good. Tip number two. Face the challenge. Verse 14, Paul says, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, that is, Peter and the guys who were fighting with him. I set the thesis in front of them all. You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul challenged them to be consistent with his attitude and actions across all cultures. See, Peter, he believed in diversity. That's what he said in Acts 10, verse 34. In fact, I remind you of that. The scripture says, Then Peter began to speak. This is after his vision. His vision of the transvision. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. So, theoretically, conceptually, as a hypothesis, Peter believed in diversity. But diversity is not something that is cognitive. Diversity is something that's social. And the moment you step into the social arena, across the racial-cultural divide, and you come into that place where you're comfortable in social settings with someone that's different than yourself, that's when you're demonstrating diversity and your appreciation for it. Everything else is a concept. Everything else is talk. Everything else is just, just words. But until you step into that social space, someone come over to your home, or you go over to someone else's home that's different than yours, and you're sitting at the table, and you're meeting with them socially, that's when you realize, I'm stepping into a new turf. See, Peter believed in the concept of diversity, but he practiced the practice of it. He showed that he placed his ethnicity above his faith. He placed peer pressure above his, the right moral path. Peter placed silence above advocacy. Advocacy is what Paul was demonstrating. 
See, when Paul says to Peter in front of everybody, that means in front of the Gentile believers, in front of the Jewish believers that have come from Jerusalem, and to, to, to reconnect to Peter, as well as in front of Peter. Paul was saying, by his statement to Peter and all those who were watching and listening, Paul was practicing advocacy. He was saying in essence to his congregation, I will not let anybody come in here and devalue you. I realize that you paid a price to be a part of my world and for me to be a part of your world and to open your heart and for me to shepherd you. That was an awesome price that you paid. And I understand. I see it. I will be your voice to this leading apostle that what he has done is wrong. Because an advocate is someone who speaks on behalf of someone else. It's a voice to the voiceless. And so practicing advocacy is something that's very real. I, I remember when, when you heard that there's over 70 nationalities in our church, the reason why I was able to quantify it like that was because I was preaching on cross-cultural worship one Sunday. About seven minutes into my sermon, I just stopped. I said, folks, you're, you're looking at me like I have three heads. I said, I want everyone who was born in another country to stand to your feet. So it's all over the place. And I said, I want you to yell out the name of your nation from where you're standing, that you were born. And if anybody else standing is from that nation has been called out, you may be seated. They yell out. China, Kenya, Brazil. When we tell it up, it was over 70 nations. Now, I said, here's the advocacy piece. And I'm not putting myself on any pedestal. I'm learning. I'm a student. This whole cross-cultural, multiracial thing, very complicated. And it's moved. Mercurious. There's some things that are standard. And I said to all those people that were standing, as your senior pastor, I want you to know this is your church. If you ever have a problem in this church that's racially, ethnically, or culturally motivated, and you feel slighted, you come to me, and I'll be your advocate. You can just feel this, this, this sense just to watch over the people. I said, please sit down. All the black folks stand. Now, the 50% stood up earlier that was non-black white, Asian, Latino. All the black folks said. Now they're standing and watching, okay? They're siding with these people. I said, I want you to know I can't model the verses by myself. The fact that you opened your heart to come here and be a part of our world and let God challenge you and help you to adjust your perspective to make room for people that are different than you is commendable. It speaks of your maturity. I want you to know that if you have any, any problem in here feeling overlooked because of your race, whether you're from the Caribbean or from Africa or here as an African American, I'm your advocate. The advocacy is about you speaking for someone else because they're unable to speak for themselves. That's what Paul was doing. And so he had to then be able to be an advocate for the Gentiles, especially in front of Peter. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting you have to do what I did. All I'm showing you is the role and the value of advocacy. So Paul was challenging Peter at that point. Peter, 
If you're going to be a Christian, be Christocentric and not ethnocentric. See, Christocentrism is when Christ is the center of your life. Ethnocentric or ethnocentrism is when your ethnicity is the center of your life. Your Jewishness can't be the centerpiece. You can't have two centerpieces. You can only have one. And so, you know, it's, 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 I understand the challenges. And, and, and it's very, very, you know, it's, for, I know in my context, I get accused sometimes, people call me an Oreo. I said, don't call me Oreo, call me Pepperidge Farm. I like that type of cookie better. <laughs> and so they'll say that, particularly black folks, because I said, what, what do you want me to do? If I have a measure of effectiveness of ministry, my limitation is not going to be to one race. I'm called to be a global Christian. I'm not called to be a Christian that's limited to race. And so I'm going to stretch myself so I can be able to be a voice that God can use in any context, whether I'm in Malaysia, or I'm in Guatemala, or I'm in, in Uganda, wherever I may be, I want to be able to be used by God as an instrument to facilitate His outcome. Do you realize that America is changing you, its complexion? I mean, let me give you a picture of what America looked, looked like in 2013, the racial composition of America. Take a look at the screen. You had 13% black, Latino, 17%. White, non-Hispanic, 62%. Asians, Pacific Islanders, 5%. That's the snapshot, snapshot of how things looked six years ago. Let's take a look now at what things look like in year 2060. So as we, now some of us won't be around, others will be around. In year 2060, whites are going to be 40% of the racial composition of America, and Latino will be 31%, almost the same. African American, 14%. And then the other racial, you, you can see the Asian Pacific Islanders, 8%. In other words, if the church of the Lord Jesus doesn't become multicultural and multiracial, you're going to find a major problem on your hands as life continues. So we have, you know, we have numerical and statistical reasons to change. Just like when I'm preaching on marriage and family, sometimes I, I don't even deal with the issue of the morality. I, I may say to the man, sir, you, you need to work things out with your wife. He's on move. And I say, let me tell you something, it's cheaper to keep her. So I deal with the economics. You know, you know how expensive divorces. So I take, <laughs> I take that route. If that's what's going to move him, I take that route. And so whatever I'm going to move him, that's the route I take. And so I'm bringing this point out to you that here's this coaching tip, that you're going to face the challenge. There's a challenge in front of you. And so you have to stretch yourself. Now, let me throw this out to you. Because most of us in the world preachers, have you ever had someone evaluate your sermon for cross-cultural preaching? I mean, it could be frightening. I woke up one day, this is several years ago. I mean, I've had cross-cultural evaluation, you know, for many, many years, but this is another level. I woke up one day, about four or five years ago, and somehow in my mind I said, I want a, cross, I want a preaching coach. I've preached in over 75 nations. I thought, okay, I'm good. I'm okay. But I just woke up one morning, called one of my old profs. I said, Russell, I... This is David Ireland. I'm looking for a preaching coach. He went through a little niceties. He said, 
I said, would you be willing to be my preaching coach, PhD in communications, dean of the seminary? I said, he said, short answer, yes. Long answer, why? I said, I feel like there's some opportunities that are close to me that unless I work on my craft, God won't open those doors for me. I said, I have sermon evaluation forms. I'll send them to you that I use when I'm grading and testing and evaluating preachers and preaching. He said, you can, but I'll, I'll create my own stuff. Let me get back to you in two weeks. He gets back to me in two weeks. He said, David, I've assembled a team of 16 people to help me evaluate your preaching. I have some atheists. I have people that have Ph.D. in homiletics. I have people from the Wesleyan tradition, Assemblies of God. I have some men. I have women. I have teenagers. I have some agnostics. I have from the whole spectrum. And so here's the, and then he says, here's the fee that you've got to pay these 16 people. So I figured, like I said, I grew up in New York. I'm going to set him to my, my, my best sermon. The devil almost got saved when I preached that one. The devil almost said, I, yeah, I'll come to Jesus. And so I said, let me send you my stuff. He said, don't send me anything. He said, whatever I need, I'll find on the Internet. I hate the Internet. I don't know how we found out I was preaching in Cuba, a communist nation. I don't know how they smuggled stuff out. They had tapes and recordings of me preaching in Cuba. And they're evaluating. But, I, but I'm bringing out the point of this, this whole evaluative process. Unless you go through this coaching where you want to improve. Because if you're really serious, you're willing to do some things that's going to stress you. It's not comfortable. Because you think that you're coming across in a very far-reaching way. Yeah, I'm great. I'm good. Oh, who's assessing and evaluating you? You may be great and good, but you don't have no. You, you have the, you don't have the right evaluators. They're not listening through the right ear. And that evaluative process was very helpful to me. One of the things that I gained from it was that I have a tendency of saying things are easy when they're not. I was teaching on evangelism. One, one of the evaluators said, all I wanted you to do is say at least once in this sermon, evangelism is hard. And I never said, that good. Out of that came, next thing I find myself preaching in Bratislava, Slovakia. This South Central, or this, this, this Central European country, former communist country, they would shut down Bratislava as the capital. They shut down the capital, you know, once a year, and they have this big conference. They shut down all the churches that is in the capital once a year, and have this big conference of all these churches, from Catholic to Methodist to Presbyterian to Pentecostal, all that, and they invite two speakers, and they invited me and a guy from China. And here I'm a black guy speaking in Slovakia. With a Slavic language through an interpreter that learned English by watching Seinfeld and sitcoms. But, but anyway, but when I look at that and say, if, if they do, the conference is called Christ in the City. And there's something special about this, this privilege that I said, God, because I was able to face the challenge of 
stretching myself to be more transcultural and transracial. You opened up this awesome opportunity, and I want all these hundreds of people come to Christ, particularly this one communist guy, former KGB guy, atheist guy, he came there just to hear an American on a Sunday morning. And he was invited by his son-in-law, and his son-in-law was so nervous because his dad had never been in church before. His father-in-law had never been in church before. When I preached, I invited them. I said, God has a dream for Slovakia. And I invited those unchurched people to come to Christ. There was that father-in-law standing at the altar. And his son-in-law was so excited. I'm saying that there's something about letting the Lord stretch you and shape you. Let me run to my third coaching tip. So the first tip is welcome the confrontation. Tip two, face the challenge. Third tip is accept the coaching. So you have to accept the coaching. And, and it's hard to accept coaching because it is so confrontational in your face. In college, I played baseball. And the baseball coach said, David, you run way too slow. So he sent me to the track coach. And so he figured that he's a guy who should be able to run much faster. So, so, so every day I had to go and work out with the track coach. And the track coach, first thing he did was said, give me your belt. And so my memory of belt was father belt. It never went pleasant with belt. And, you know, so I'm, I'm standing back there and I got one of my belts. And so I pulled off my belt, and then he took off his belt, and he wrapped it around my hand. He put the buckle right into my palm, and he wrapped the belt around my, my, my elbow and both arms like this. And so I was forced now to run like this, because when I ran, when I was playing baseball, I ran like a dog was chasing me. I was almost like I was swimming. I mean, I'm just running wild, because I'm thinking the wilder I run, the faster I'm running. And so I'm running like this, right? It's so chaotic. I didn't know that. I thought I was good. And so they had me running then and running over hurdles, and my hands are like this, look almost like a machine. Mom, I'm with the track coach. See, I'm accepting this coaching. And when they sent me back to the baseball team, man, I looked good, but I was still slow. <laughs> my speed never increased, but I looked so smooth. I looked almost like a Kenyan, but I wasn't. I was just an American. I'm not, I didn't have the speed. Yeah, but my point here in that silly story, which is a true story, is the fact that we have to accept the coaching. Don't limit yourself. And oftentimes when you're accepting the coaching, there's something inside of you that cries to say, I need to repent for how I have been. I need to repent. I need to turn around. I need to, you know, about faith. I need to, you know, to realize that my perspective was so limiting and it was so, it was, it was over the top. I saw myself in a better place than what I really was. And I was coming across as I was a know-it-all or I had it all together or those people. And I'm distinguishing myself from others who were different than myself because of my own limited perspective. And so repentance oftentimes is a precursor and a vital ingredient in accepting coaching. i got to be a sponge, not fight with my coach or argue with my coach or reject the idea that I need coaching. I love what the great English preacher Charles Spurgeon said. When we deal seriously with our sin, God will deal gently with us. When we hate what the Lord hates, 
He will soon make an end of it. To our joy and peace. See, it's, it's easy to stay silent and disengage when it comes to race. It's easy to fall that trap. When you hang around monocultural people, you become monocultural. When you hang around multicultural people, you become multicultural. You start opening up your heart wide. When you accept coaching, you accept the principles that the coaches offer. And some practical things, practical things such as coaches will challenge you, cross-cultural coaches will challenge you to practice accommodation and not tolerance. The accommodation is when you open your heart wide to the difference of people. Tolerance is when you put up with people. Nothing about tolerance is positive, no matter what the world says. Anybody that tolerates you, you don't feel comfortable being around. But you feel comfortable around people who accommodate you. They make room for you. And it means so much. When I first got married, my wife says, Honey, I, I want to buy a pair of shoes. Let's go to the mall. I said, Fine. I figured she shopped like me. It's been said that men and women, we shop differently. I'm using this generalization now, so don't stone me, ladies. When men go shopping, they go on a hunt. When women go shopping, they go on a safari. And so it's a different perspective. And so here I am, I'm going shopping. I figure she's going to shop the way I shop. You go in, you bag a tie, you bag a shirt, bag a pair of slacks, you're in and out. And so I go to the mall with my new bride, and I'm figuring, oh, we're going to be there for five minutes or so, top. And she went to one store, shoe store, tried on a pair of shoes. She was looking for blue shoes. Tried it on, size was fine. You know, the price was good. I said, let's get it. She said, no, 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 no. Let's go to the other shoe store. We walked a mile to the other end of the, the mall, and then we, she went through the same process. Asked for a pair of blue shoes, tried it on, size was right, right, fit was good, price was right, and I said, okay, let's bag it. Let's do it. She said, no, there's one more store. And so I was so angry. My, you ever watched the boxing promoter, Don King? My short hair was standing right up all like this. I mean, I was so angry. I said, I, I can't take it. I can't take it. I was tolerating her. And she was feeling so bad about her style and how she shopped and what she was looking for because of me as an image to her husband. And in the providence of God, he didn't give me two sons, he gave me two daughters. And so when my girls would say, Dad, let's go to the store, I'd say, oh my Lord. And I learned over the years as I matured, as a man and as a father, I would take a book with me. And so now, the experience in comedy, I may read. <laughs> I may read Lost in, <laughs> you know, Lost in Paradise or be read the whole Bible. But the idea, <laughs> the idea is that they never feel, because sometimes when I go with my daughters, my wife would say, did Dad rush you? And they said, no, Dad didn't rush us. So I can take off that, that take blow. Check it off. I learned to be accommodating. This whole cross-cultural thing is built on the principle of you being accommodating. When coaches, cross-cultural coaches, front, confront you and you welcome confrontation and they challenge you to accept coaching, it's about accepting what they've presented to you, though it may not be natural at first. It wasn't natural for me to go to the store and take a book with me and 
and sometimes spend hours looking for something. It wasn't natural. But I adopted a style that made my daughters and my wife feel immensely comfortable and valued. I was more concerned about them feeling valuable than I was about me feeling put out or feeling awkward. And I wanted to pass on these principles to you so that you may be able to grow as a cross-cultural leader. Because there are people in your sphere of influence, in your neighborhood, in your city, that God has assigned to come into your sphere of influence. And you need to open your heart wide and teach the people in your congregations to open their hearts wide so that they would be able to experience and be, be stretched and benefited by God's highest creation, people. And He's given you that gift. May I pray with you? Let's stand together. I hope these little principles were of help to you. If you want to give the Lord a round of applause, let's give the Lord a round of applause. I want you to picture some of the people groups in your community right now that you may have not thought about them as options to be a part of your church before. But maybe tonight, God's stretching you and moving on you to say, these individuals are candidates to be a part of your world and your community, your local church community. Open your heart to them. Lord, I ask that you would just do amazing things in our lives. I ask that you would remove our biases, our myths. Help us to be the cross-cultural leader that you've called us to be. Help us to see people the way you see them. Help us to be so accommodating. Teach us, dear Lord. And I pray that we may be able to teach others in our sphere of influence in such a way that we would be able to care for people that are different than ourselves, racially, ethnically, and culturally. I pray that every church, every fellowship of churches represented here tonight would experience this great touch of God on their lives. That they will be able to care for a racially diverse group. These things I ask you in the name of Jesus. Keep your eyes closed for a moment. Just let the Lord minister to you. There's a gentleman in this room. You've been having heart palpitations. At times your heart races, and you have to sit down and catch your breath. There's a healing anointing that just enters the room. Where are you? Raise your hand nice and high. The Lord wants to bring healing to you. A word of knowledge about a gentleman in here. Your heart palpitations. Your heart races. At times you get so breathless you have to sit down and catch your breath. Where are you? Raise your hand nice and high. God wants to heal you tonight. Where are you, sir? Nice and high. Raise your hand. God wants to heal you. A gentleman in this room with that heart condition. Come forward. The Lord wants to bring healing to you. There's a woman here. Your knee buckles. At times when you walk, you almost fall because your knee buckles. Where are you, ma'am? The Lord wants to bring healing to you. Come. The Holy Spirit's here tonight to bring healing. Lord, 
Tell me your first name, my sister. What is it? Jody. As you stand in front of me, you've been going through such anguish emotionally because there's been this fragment between you. I'm looking at a younger lady in your life, and God is going to bring reconciliation to that relationship that seems so torn. It seems so gnarled and dysfunctional. It seems there were harsh words that were exchanged and strong personalities on both parts. But God is going to break down that division that's been there and bring reconciliation. This is going to be a trophy of the grace of God working on your life. And in your heart, you've been saying, God, what are my gifts? I'm tired of feeling as if I have no gifts. Lift your hands to Jesus, Jody. The Lord's about to just pour out upon you just a fresh anointing. One of the gifts that you have is a gift of hospitality. You love caring for the needs of people. You see the practical dimension. And you've not been looking at the practical things that you see as gifts. The Lord says, I'm let you feel what people feel. You feel their burdens. You feel their heartache. And so you're someone that comes alongside. You write a nice note. You cook a nice meal. And you befriend them. The Lord says, that is a gift of hospitality. A very precious gift. A community building gift. A healing gift. And so I anoint you this night, the Lord says, with fresh oil. Receive. Receive in Jesus' name. Breakthrough. 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 Question no longer your value. Question no longer your giftedness, declares the Lord. And to you, my brother, the Lord's healing right now is opening up every valve, every artery. I curse every blockage. I speak healing from the crown of your head to the soles of your feet. Your preaching ministry will not wane. Get ready for a fresh anointing on your preaching gift where you've been feeling exhausted and times breathless and winded in the pulpit. The Lord says, I renew your strength as an eagle and I renew your vision. I give you fresh vision for this generation. Get ready. There's going to be a fathering anointing coming upon you. I send young men and young women to you and they'll look at you as a spiritual dad and you'll mold and shape and coach and tutor and train them for great things in me, my son. So receive this night a fresh touch of preaching and teaching and counseling through word ministry upon your life. And Jody, the Lord heals you of that need that's been buckling. I curse it right now and I speak healing in Jesus' name. The peace of God come upon you. The peace of God. Amen. We serve this good God. He's so loving. He's so, so honoring. This young lady here, come towards me. Come towards me. You've been going through a whole depression. Sulking. Your emotions have not... It's just almost... You're always an upbeat, joyous young lady, but you've been going like this. And the reason why you've been going in this decline is because you've had bad news come your way about your aspirations vocationally and academically. And tonight, the Holy Spirit says, their no is not my no. And I'm going to cause you to fulfill your dream from when you were a little girl. The Lord says, get ready for doors of opportunity. Do you remember the passage of Scripture when Peter says, he's been fishing all night, and the Lord says, throw out your net another time? The Lord says, throw out your net one more time. Stop soaking because you have not heard my statement. 
get ready. My word is yes to you. Yes with your academic goals. Yes with your vocational aspirations. Yes, 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 yes. And all the resources will be there to underwrite your aspirations. Get ready. The touch of God's coming on you. Father, I anoint this young lady. I ask you to open doors wide that no man can close and cause her to be the head and not the tail, the first and not the last, above and not beneath. The Lord said, I'm going to honor you for your hard work. See, when other people are fooling around, you are studying, you're a bookworm, you love books, you love reading, and you love, you just love all that. And God's going to fulfill your heart's desire. You get me? You got it? <laughs> oh, God loves us. This young man here with, you know, with the, I don't that, you know, the black hoodie. Uh, come on, come on down, come on down. Praise God. God loves us, doesn't He? Yeah. Take it easy. Take it easy. Relax. Relax. Don't, there's nothing. There's nothing. You don't need to be nervous about anything. I'm looking at a vision. The vision I see a sidewalk and a big hole in it. And you've fallen so many times in that hole. In your heart, the easiest thing to do is to give up. But you're not a quitter. And you've climbed out of the hole. And the Lord said, because you've climbed out of the hole, I'm going to cause you to stay strong and fulfill your goals in the earth. There was a time where you're going through a mentoring and a shaping for preaching. And you felt like, man, it just doesn't fit me. It just doesn't fit me. I'm just, I feel like I'm a round peg in a square hole. The Lord says, I'm going to make you discover your own style and your uniqueness. See, you're not a bookworm type of guy. You're a practical guy. See, you know, she's a bookworm. You're not the bookworm. You're, you're the practical guy. You're just, uh, I, I just, I'm a practical guy. I'm good with my hand. I'm good with my mind. I'm a practical guy. And Lord, I'm going to use you as a practical guy. For you're the guy I call for this situation. And I anoint you for the use of today. I anoint you that you may be like a pipe piper. As you play, they come. As you talk, they'll come. As you sing, they'll follow you. And so the Lord says, my assignment on you is to reach the young people, but to use ways and methods and methods that are very unique. And so I am not calling you a cookie cutter preacher, but you are a preacher, says the Lord. And you're going to preach in a way that's non-traditional, and you'll do ministry in a unique way. No longer try to fit the prototypical model. That's not who you are. I've made you a man unto myself in a unique way. Father, anoint this young man that he may fulfill all of your plans for his life in the name of Jesus. And one other thing, tell me your first name. Stephen, Stephen, you're walking around with all this disappointment on you. You're disappointed. Some of you in your family, you feel it, the weight on you. When you come around them, you feel shame. The Lord's breaking off you this night. Shame. Receive in Jesus' name. I wipe it from you this night. The peace of God comes on you. Receive in the name of Jesus. Now, Stephen, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Evidence of speaking other tongues? You got it? Lift your hands for a fresh baptism. Father, 
A fresh baptism receive it like you did in Acts 4. Baptize with boldness in the name of Jesus. And I pray that the great honor will come to his family. That his family will have a great respect and a great rapport and great pride when they think of Stephen. Receive tonight favor from your own family, says the Lord. In Jesus' name. Praise God. Come on, let's thank the Lord tonight for His goodness. Amen. Pastor Aaron Bjork, come here. I'm not going to ask Stephen. You're his pastor. The young man that just got ministered, you're his pastor. The words that he used... Were they God words? Yeah. Every word about disappointment. Every word about mentoring. I mean, are you sure you weren't in some of the meetings we've been in? For the Lord would say to you, you've tried and tried and tried to locate a building fit that's fitted for your own ministry and style. And you've been taken advantage of financially and legally. And you've lost buildings and properties that were in your hands. But tonight the Lord says, I will give you double honor for your shame. And because you've been concerned about the brokenhearted, the down and out, and the reject, you've always sought me for those who others have overlooked. You've never looked for the highbrow, the sophisticated, for you've been called to reach the marginalized and those the people have discarded, the ones who have been thrown away. And so tonight the Lord says, Son of mine, I'm going to give you buildings and I'm going to give you resources that you may have ministry that meets the practical needs of people. No longer will you say, it's because of my lack of formal education, I'm not able to conquer these things, that I'll always have to struggle. The Lord says, I wipe from you those thoughts, and I give you now a sense of honor, because you've cared for those who have not been cared for. You've loved those who have not been loved. You've clothed those who have not been clothed. You've fed those who have not been fed. And because you've cared for those, I now provide care for you, my son. When you return home, watch what I will do. I'm going to cause a miracle to take place for you in resources and in property, declares the Lord. I ain't going to shut no faucet off. No way. God has spoken to this fellowship tonight. Every, every, everything he said was on target. Aaron, I know it was on target. Stephen, we know it was on target. How many senses? Feel it? God spoke a word to us. God spoke a word to Kim, too, didn't he? About, about what we heard tonight. And Eli, God, I mean, we're here for a purpose, and it was to hear the word of God. David, you were right on. You hit every target. Bullseye. So, that's right, he is. So, we're, to, we're taking some steps as a fellowship. we got to face it. we got to embrace it. And we got to accept it. 
I kind of wondered if that was the case. Do you have someone else? No, no, you're not. Come on, you're the boss. I want to minister to those who are heads of networks. Would you guys come and stand here if you're head of a network of ministry? Even tonight, my son, I began to speak to your heart to say, it's time to broaden the pond and fish in bigger, heavier, deeper waters. No longer limit yourself. Let me show you how to catch the big fish. Let me show you how to serve them, to meet their needs, to stretch them. For I've made you a man that is very easy to entreat others. And as a result of that, I'm going to use you in a fresh way, my son. But I'm going to put people into your life that will stretch you and take you out of your comfort zone so you may be able to fulfill your calling in the earth. But the potential is not there yet. My sister, you've been, uh, there's a part of you that's very timid. People see the external, but the internal, very timid. And the Holy Spirit is stretching you. Because there's, I'm listening to a conversation through the gift of the Word of Knowledge. The Lord, at times, you're listening to a conversation. I'm listening to a conversation. And I'm hearing you talk to your husband and you're saying, I'm tired of seeing so many people fall morally. And I'm going to use you as one that will come alongside broken people to help buttress them up that they will not fall morally. And in the private times, they shall come and seek you out. And like a mother hen comes and gathers her chicks, so shall you gather them and nurture and care and love on them in a way that's going to be therapeutic and transformational. So I anoint you this night with a gift of healing that you may be able to minister to broken hearts and bind up their broken wounds. And even in your own heart, you've said, I want to go back to school. So I'm launching you back to the classroom, my daughter, that I'll be able to deposit in you perspectives that'll be different from what you've been taught and reared and inculcated these many years. Get ready, because that should be part of your experience, because of the things I want to do for you. Receive this day, declares the Lord. And even to you, my son, the Lord would say, I'm going to add and expand you into other nations like you have desired. But it shall not be the nations that are just traditionally black in terms of color and race. I'm going to send you to Europe. And that continent, you shall find yourself, your feet stepping on land and soil from different places to minister in different needs to people that you've thought, there's no way I would have thought to reach them before. But I'm going to use you in that context, declares the Lord. Get ready. In fact, you've been in your heart saying, what should I do? I'm going through this whole thinking of succession planning and passing the baton. And I'm tired. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? The Lord says, it is time for you to train up individuals to pass the baton. It is not a reflection of failure. It is a reflection of success. 
hand the baton in a sequential and a systematic way. We're sought to plan and choreograph so the world will continue to prosper. But it's time now for your apostolic gift to be strengthened in the earth realm. And so you've been a local man and you've been comfortable and you love the smell of sheep. Now I say the smell of leaders shall be heavy on you like never before. And you shall be able to go to the four corners of the world and find peace as you do that. So in this season, my son, prepare yourself for transition. That which I showed you in a dream years ago, global ministry, it's now time, declares the Lord. And to you, son of mine, I've given you a preaching gift. And in times gone by, you've said, God, I'm going to just, just lay back a little and let the younger guys take it. And I'm just going to lay back and push the young guys forward. And you've been content in being that spiritual dad that doesn't want to occupy the seat of primary preaching all the time. And Lord says, I commend you for your humility. But I now call you, my son. It's time for you to begin to raise up leaders like never before and challenge them. For you have been a man that you hate confrontation. But the Lord would say, it's time for you to be able to take out not only the, the, the hug and the coddling, but also the, the, to be able to spank and to chase them. It's time to be able to bring them into alignment so that the work may progress like it's never progressed before. It's in this season, and this time the Lord's been dealing with you about writing, and writing has never come easy for you. You start, you stop, you start, you stop, you start, you stop. God says, I'm going to give you a gift that you'll start and finish. So that which was inside of you, that which is a longing in your heart. See, one of the things that also just perturbs you is when you see all the young men making all these foolish mistakes. They love the place of visibility, but they hate the place of intimacy. And God has put intimacy in your heart from your youth up. And you hate the place of visibility and you love the place of intimacy. And God is going to use you to help others come into a place of intimacy with themselves. So write, 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 declares the Lord. You're very good, my brother, when it comes to administration, structure, organization, strategizing. You know how to put stuff together on paper and pen and forecast 5, 10, 15, 20 years out. You're very good when it comes to visionary. The Lord says, I want you to put that side of yourself on the back burner and put on the forefront the gift that preaches, teaches to challenge. I've made you an excellent administrator. Now I want to make you an excellent preacher. So that you can shape the mind and the will of the younger ones. Receive fresh anointing on your gift. God's going to have the place of administrative leadership filled by some capable person in your spirit that has stepped into that spot as to free you up to do things that's in your heart in regards to mobilizing preaching and preachers through preaching. Bring your heart. My son, you said, God, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. I feel like I'm running uphill. I'm just tired. The Lord renews your strength today as an eagle. 
and I call you to be a prophet. Don't you remember my word? I call you to be a prophet. One that stirs, one that points, one that challenges. For you are a Jeremiah. And when you said, I will not prophesy any longer, my word was soaked in you like a fire. And so in these days, the Lord said, I, I just stir fresh the prophetic gift. And I say to you, son of mine, I call you my Jeremiah. Prophesy, prophesy, prophesy to my church and my people. And speak my word and stir my people to that place of focus once again, son of mine. You, my son, the Lord says, you are a shepherd, a shepherd, a caring, nurturing shepherd among shepherds. So broken shepherds shall come to you in the wee hours of the morning. Broken shepherds, you would have shipwrecked their ministry unless you have intersected their life. The Lord says, I'm going to use you in that regard to bring broken shepherds, wounded shepherds, failing shepherds alongside of you. And you'll restore them back to proper emotional, spiritual, and relational health. So the Lord anoints you again. And you, you never love the place of visibility. You fight against being in a visible place, the spotlight. The Lord loves that about you. The Lord says, because of that, I'm going to help you deal with confrontation because you hate confrontation. You shy away from it like it's a plague. And there's some leaders that you just want to just straighten them out, but you just you hate the confrontation. The Lord says, I'm going to teach you how to integrate confrontation into your personality and your style. It will not be odd when it comes out of your mouth, but it will be so loving and so gracious that the tough people will fall in line and realize that Daddy God, through His Son, has really spanked me. And so the Lord says, let me use you, because that rod of correction is a reflection of my love, declares the Lord. Let me love leaders through you, even when it comes to correcting them, declares the Lord. Tell me your first name. Benjamin. Benjamin. You're just finding your voice and finding yourself. You're just, you know, just a whirlwind of frustration. Just frustrated. The word of the Lord to you is settle yourself. You are a marathoner. Pace yourself. And don't be weary in well-doing. For you'll reap if you faint not. You've hit some stumbling blocks in the road. And the Lord says, do not let the stumbling blocks destroy your confidence or your faith. It's in this season that the Lord says, stabilizing you. And I'm bringing some people around you. But you have a, a number of people in your life. We're like Joabs. They're hard to get along with. Hard to deal with. They always have something negative to say. Always want to confront. Always want to challenge. And the easiest thing to do is just to wipe them out of your life. The Lord says, don't discard your Joab until you sit firmly on the throne. Your Joab is to help you. Sharpens your gift. Sharpens your perspective. Sharpens your reasoning. Sharpens your ability to make decisions that's far-reaching. God is stretching you. You have an apostolic gift. God is stretching you in your apostolic gifting and anointing. And so, pace yourself. And the Lord is going to use you in a great way. Father, I thank you for this young man. 
I thank you for his calling. I thank you for his gifting. I thank you for the door that you'll open in the days that lie ahead. I pray that you drain the frustration from his heart. That he will not be mired in the frustration, but he'll be at peace. And he'll know your peace that passes all understanding. In Christ's name. Brethren, you can go back to the screen if you can. Let's all stand together. Wow. I, I knew every one of these folks. And uh, David Arlen, you, you hit the you hit the bullseye.